So Matthew 2, 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourn, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Now, I wonder if um, so far this series, you've had a growing tension in you. You hear about history disrupted and Joseph's life disrupted, the powerful disrupted. Today, we hear about a family disrupted. There's a lot of disruption. And I wonder how you relate to this notion of disruption. Does disruption feel remote, uh, alien to your life? Does the Christmas story make you grateful for all the disruption that happened way back when, so we don't have to deal with it today? Or does this disruption feel familiar to you? Do you identify with the, the disruption of Mary and Joseph? You see, the invisible author of all this disruption is God. Apparently, when God intervenes, at this time in history, there is a lot of disruption. Maybe God's methods are a little bit disruptive. But then does this disruptiveness make you love and trust God more? Does it make you want to draw close to him? Does it make you want to celebrate his global mission, which was the lesson of our Rev 7 series, just started prior to this one? Or is this notion of disruptiveness a little bit unsettling? I don't know if you felt a growing tension in you, but for me, challenging my image of God is uncomfortable. Maybe the images of God as father or shepherd or gardener or friend are easier to meditate on devotionally for me than God of the whirlwind that we see in Job, or the God of disruption that we meet in Matthew when we're talking about the Advent, the, the Christmas story. 
the God whose ways are mysterious, the God who walks people down roads that are difficult and dark and lonely, asking them to rely on the word of a dream as they enter foreign lands as refugees. As I look back on this year, thinking about the various stressors, imagining God as my shepherd is helpful, comforting, consoling. It makes me feel safe. Imagining God as my disruptor, wow. It's really hard to go there. I don't want to. Because when I do, then I have to wrestle through whether I really believe that pain can be redemptive. And I have to reconcile my heart with a love that is big enough to be disruptive. To reconcile love with the inner pain that disruption brings. You know, it's easier to just ignore these questions. God as a shepherd makes me feel safe. God as a disruptor makes me feel nervous. So when we start a series like this, I can't help but think that it's a hard growth task to hold on to a multifaceted image of God that is bigger than the metaphors we tend to overuse and to wrap our minds around him that is bigger than the devotional metaphors that make us feel safe. And instead, and instead consider the God who is the shaker of globes, the cosmic snow globe that he shakes in his disruption. You know, maybe this wasn't the Advent series that you had put on your Christmas wish list, but still we proceed on this sermon series of God's disruptive ways. In our passage today, you know, we don't have a three-point sermon. I'm getting bad at doing those, I guess. We have three prophetic fulfillments, three dreams, two families disrupted, two messages from two authors, and two lessons learned from two theological poles to navigate during Advent. So in other words, I hope you didn't make lunch plans. <laughs> I should have you home by 3 o'clock. As we make our way through this passage, we can see that the obedience and the active wisdom of Mary and Joseph, who are the instruments of God, are used to protect Jesus, the Messiah. And we see that contrasted with Herod's failed attempt to destroy the Messiah, to protect his own throne. Ironically, Herod, and not Jesus, is the one who meets death in our passage. So three prophetic fulfillments, three dreams, two families disrupted, two messages from two authors, and two lessons from two theological poles to navigate during Advent. I have 12 points for the 12 days of Christmas, which I will walk through as quickly as I can while remaining clear and careful. Let's start with the three prophetic fulfillments. The first fulfillment is in verse 15. Would you look there with me? because Jesus went to Egypt, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. The second fulfillment is in verse, verses 17 and 18. 
because Herod killed many infants and toddlers, which is very tragic. It's not just disruptive, it's tragic. This is, then, then what was fulfilled through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. So verses 17 and 18. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The third prophetic fulfillment is in verse 23. Because Jesus was raised in Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Out of Egypt, Rachel weeping for her children, he will be called a Nazarene. Three diverse fulfillments. And this fulfillment language occurs five times in Matthew 1 and 2. And perhaps you're curious what's going on here. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I mean, isn't this Hosea's reference to God's rescue of Israel from Egypt? It's based on the promise that, that God gave to Abraham, that he would deliver his offspring, though they spend 40 years of, in slavery in Egypt. Out of Egypt, I call my son. A voice is heard in Ramah. I mean, isn't this Jeremiah's reference to the Babylonian captivity? I mean, how can these, these refer to Jesus? Did these Old Testament human authors know what they were saying? Did the Holy Spirit encode hidden messages not known or, div uh, or devised at all by the human authors at the time? You know, it's likely that this language of fulfillment is an example of typology. Typology, things are fulfilled insofar as they show God, God's steady hand at work and there are legitimate commonalities to be drawn. Typology is a method of biblical interpretation. We do it, biblical authors did it when interpreting scripture themselves. In this case, typology refers to how Matthew interprets the Old Testament and how he used it when he wrote his gospel. Typology looks for events and themes um, ideas, objects, to find inspired types, right, patterns or symbols represented in the Old Testament that, re that, that represent God's activity in, later in history. Typology means patterns or, or symbols. That's what a type means. And they show that the Bible is a unified whole. It's a method of creative Bible interpretation. And it certainly does imply that the Holy Spirit was at work both in creating the conditions that overlap and bringing that area of overlap into the awareness of the author. Tim Keller is a famous preacher that, who uses typology to preach Christ in every passage, right? He looks for the beeline to the cross in every, in every single sermon. Every scripture he preaches, he looks for Jesus. He preaches Christ from every passage. Is Christ present in every passage? I mean, not literally, but when you zoom out and see the forest for the trees, Christ is there. It's, if redemptive history is a unified whole, then it's possible to do this. But typology is a little broader than Tim Keller uh, applies it. For example, Herod's massacre of the innocents um, is also a form of typology. It's drawing a parallel between what happened then and what's happening now, the suffering of captivity and exile. This, this typology involves the image of Rachel, the, the Israelite mother per excellence, as an Im image of corporate Israel and her maternal grief. History had repeated itself. God's sovereign hand is at work in both events. And this bloodshed fulfilled by, in, in Jeremiah's words, implies that Jesus is the Messiah, that God is at work again. And, and that third uh, 
that third fulfillment, he would be called a Nazarene, has this same function to say that Jesus is a Messiah because it, it resolves the so-called contradiction between the fact that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem and the Messiah would come from Nazareth. Nazareth, how can both be true? But they are. In summary, we have three prophetic fulfillments. See, that wasn't that bad, right? Out of, out of Egypt, Rachel weeping for her children, and he would be called a Nazarene. Now we move on to the three dreams. Let me plant a thought before I go there. Now, we talk about prophecy as predictive, as having the Holy Spirit encoded mean, hidden meaning behind uh, these, these themes. And, and God actually knew these things were going to happen. He knew the messi messianic criteria that have to be set 600 years before, or at 600 BC or so. Um, and even further back, if you consider his sovereign plan that has existed for all eternity, and yet he waits until the most disruptive time to drop the news. I'm just going to plant that thought. I'll come back to it. We have three dreams. Our passage opens with the first dream in verse 13, and you can read it with me. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take, this child, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. The second happens in verse 19, and you can read that with me. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And finally, we learn in verse 22, right, having been warned in a dream about the danger associated with the territory of Archelaus, he withdrew uh, to the district of Galilee. That is Joseph and the family. So, so Joseph has a series of dreams. A dream to run, to flee, a dream that it's safe to go home, and a dream uh, that, that actually it's not safe to go to that particular region, but it's safe to go to another region. Dreams are God's way of communicating, uh, and they're spotted throughout the book of Matthew. He gives dreams to the Magi, for example. He gives dreams to Pi a dream to Pilate's wife. She said she's been, uh, when Jesus was, was up before Pilate, his, his, his wife said to Pilate, have nothing to do with this man. The Lord has been t uh, troubling me with dreams all day. Dreams are God's way of communicating in Matthew, in this passage. So by calculations, Jesus may have been in Egypt upwards of two years. Um, it's also possible he was there as little as a few weeks or months. You see, Jesus was born between 6 BC and 4 BC. Um, Herod's math, which, which caused him to kill all the baby boys two years or, and, and younger, had to do with the appearance of a star um, rather than Jesus' real age. So we can't be sure when Herod began his descent into madness. Um, it, it may not have been long before his death because Jewish historian um, Josephus recorded details of, of Herod's death at 4 BC. Right? So Herod died at 4 BC. That's why we know, know Jesus was, in fact, alive before 4 BC. Um, and he may, be, may have been as, as, as much as two years older than that, that when, when Herod died. Um, the symptoms of Herod's death were also recorded. Um, itching, intestinal pain, shortness of breath, convulsions, and gangrene. And actually, a physician 20 years ago or so commented on, on the likely cause of death. He did a uh, an autopsy of sorts where he uh, looked back on all of these things and said the most likely explanation for this was chronic kidney disease, but it was, usually, it was probably complicated by an acute case of 
Fournier's gangrene. I don't know if that means anything to you, but perhaps as you think about this, maybe this was divine judgment, but at least it's certainly poetic justice, right? It feels pretty good. Herod the Great, who'd been on his throne 33 years, died a short time after slaying the children of Bethlehem, right? He set out to massacre. He, he died himself. So, so the journey to Egypt lasted between a few weeks or months and upwards of two years. And we have a series of dreams guiding us through this passage to run, to flee, that it's safe to go home and that it's not only safe, uh, it's not only safe to go here, but to go here. Um, the angel in this dream demanded immediate action, right? Rather than something slow and planned out, something that, that God uh, could have told Joseph, I mean, in his teens, he could have said, Joseph, there's going to be these things that happen, so make preparations, like have a camel ready. He didn't do that. Um, something about God and his disruptive ways, I wonder. Okay, now we next consider two disrupted families. The first family is Jesus's family, right? Joseph and Mary. They're threatened by a psychotic ruler who's set on infanticide. They're also hauling even more precious cargo than usual with a baby, since they've been told that Jesus is, has, has such a significance to Egypt that he is the coming Messiah. That they're told they, they leave really early. They take the, quote, red-eye flight, um, becoming refugees in a foreign land where they wait out the death of this corrupt leader. This is displacements and disruption. The second family that's disrupted, which, I, which I'll just note, is Herod's family, right? David had already talked about Herod's descent into madness, so I will not belabor the point. I'm not even sure how to categorize what Herod does, this, this infanticide, this, this failed attempt to destroy Jesus. But certainly his, his threat of future deposal, right, of, of this Messiah becoming the king, that, that's weighing upon him. But, I mean, there, there's a lot going on. I mean, shortly before his death, Herod executes his oldest son, Antipater II, right? This is in 4 BC as well. I mean, Herod is, is going through a chaotic time as well in his family. His family has suffered many disruptions. Now, going back to Mary and Joseph, their disruption, let me talk about family stress. Um, and the way that they talk about it in, in the field of counseling, right, is, the, is family st stress, right, or just stress in general, the impact of stress is the, the, the interplay between three factors. The first factor is the stressful event, event itself. There's an objective quality to that stressor. The resources um, and strengths that a family possesses at the time of the disruption. And the family's perception of the event. Now, in terms of the event itself, it is hard to imagine something more stressful for Mary and Joseph, is it not? In the field of counseling, stressful events are distinguished between predictable events and, and unpredictable events. It's based on one's ability to make preparations for that change. You know, using the terms at hand, I would classify this as a situational, unusual, non-volitional uh, stressor originating from a situation outside of their control. In terms of stressful events, studies have been done ranking stress-producing events on a scale from zero to 100. Eight of the top 12 directly involve the family. 
right? Death of a spouse, divorce, marital separation, detention in jail or other institutions, um, death of another close family member, major uh, personal injury or illness, um, being fired, marital reconciliation. So the other side of, of marriage going wrong, it going right um, is a stressor. Retirement, major changes in the health and behavior of a family member in pregnancy. You know, I mean, they hit four of these and the threat of infanticide is not even on the list. Maybe it doesn't happen on, enough to, to be considered, but this, this wasn't easy for them, right? The stress can have a cumulative effect. If it can grow like a snowball does. And so the next factor, right, is not just the objective nature of the stressor, but, but the family's resources um, and their, their strengths to cope with managing these. Just, just think about after a natural disaster, right? Some families can relocate temporarily, right? They can drive away, they can fly away, they can, they can leave, uh, yeah, ground zero. They, can, they, can, they have the funds to pay for airfare. There are other families that just don't. And so they have to be there in the midst of their, their home getting flooded or in the midst of an earthquake. Um, families have different capacities to cope with stress based on their resources. I mean, money's a resource, so is education, so is personal maturity, physical and mental health. Having more of any of these resources helps people handle stressful situations. The shock of a crisis um, can be difficult for even the healthiest and most balanced of families. Um, everyone benefits from friends, neighbors, coworkers, churches, communities gathering around them. And a lot of people cultivate these resources over time. Mary and Joseph, however, were a vulnerable family, right? We know that by their two turtle dove offering, which they, that, that, a provision was made in the law of Moses for low-income families to, to make an offering at the time of circumcision. And this was what Mary and Joseph made. There were few resources to, to, they could draw on in this unanticipated stressor that hit them beyond the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The family does not speak the language of Egypt. I'm, assu I'm assuming. Maybe they did. But likely, they didn't have work. Maybe they didn't have education that would have corresponded with the needs in Egypt. Maybe they didn't have communal resources. They didn't have these things that a lot of us have the privilege of building up slowly over time because they dealt with cumulative stress after stress, which grew and just changed and they adapted. Right? So, so there's the stressor, there's the family's ability and resources to cope with the stressor. And finally, there's the family's perception of the event. And surely this is the factor that made the difference for Mary and Joseph. This is the factor that helped them to remain resilient. For Mary and Joseph, what occurs is miraculous intervention, right? They are being guided by God. This is a seed of hope that is, I imagine, the most significant factor in the equation. Helps them keep moving forward. Perhaps that's it. All right, so we have gone through the, the fulfillments, the dreams, the two family stressors. Now we have two messages from two authors. This portion of the narrative is, is a historical reporting. Um, there are three dream epiphanies and their messages conveyed through an angel of the Lord. As with most reports, 
just straight up history in scripture, we actually need to look at the wider context in order to understand its meaning. Simply what happened is not the devotional content or the sermonic content. When we telescope out, what is Matthew saying by this? And what's God saying by this? What are the two authors saying? I think that what Matthew is saying by this is that this child is the Messiah, right? He fits the bill. He fulfills the prophecy. He's the one we're waiting for. A, B, and C, he's done all these things. God protects him. He is the Messiah. I think what God's saying in this is that I am in control. Trust me. God's protecting this family through displacement. His disruption serves a purpose. Though they become refugees, though he waits till the last minute, he gives them provision for the way. Which maybe they wouldn't have had if they hadn't stuck around long enough to see the wise men. God guides them back to the land of Israel, which is where the Messiah has his ministry. God knows what's up before it happens. In these events, God is shaping history. Any length of time, I imagine, could have been instructive for this family to see the parallels between their own story and the story of Israel. I, I think it would just have to be weeks, right? Weeks long, uh, just a few weeks of displacement before I start to identify with, with Israel, who has gone into Egypt in slavery. Um, makes me start thinking about what God is doing through all of this. And I, you wonder about what God does through this in the minds of the leaders of Israel, through the minds of Herod and his families, those that would be in power when Jesus was alive. There's something special about this child, right? Out of all the children in Bethlehem, this is the child that God protected. All right, let that sink in. It's a difficult truth. Out of all the children, this is the one God protected. It's a disruptive truth, but it is true. <laughs> Which brings me to my concluding thoughts on the lesson between the two theological poles that we have to navigate during Advent. Well, trust me, I, I wasn't sure we'd ever get here either. 12 points is a lot. When responding to stress, as with the rest of life, I mean, Christians are shaped by their theological foundations. I mean, there are some Christians seeking to take responsibility for their faith they want to take everything into their own hands. They want to have control of their character development. They want to shape their families and their communities. And these are all good things, but without a humble reliance on prayer and dependence, I mean, God becomes a, merely a bystander in this whole process. In its most extreme form exists the faithless works of Herod, right? For him, there would be no advent. It is hard to be dependent and in control at the same time. I mean, he would cut the bud, nip the bud of the Messiah. In fact, he'd rip up the whole flower bed before it had the poten potential to grow into something that would be disruptive to him and his family. There would be no disruption because control is supreme and we are the masters of our own destiny. I wonder if you identify to a degree with Herod. I know sometimes in my own life, control can remain supreme and dependence on God and that humility can sometimes be hard to let go of. 
You know, on the opposite pole, right, if control's over here, on the opposite pole, when Christians try to mirror Mary and Joseph's obedience, it can become passivity and resignation and anticipation that God can and should do anything he wills to. Many Christians simply choose to wait. They wait for the dream. They wait for the miraculous to break through. They wait for God to act. They become passive especially in light of the second advent. They say, well, only God can fix this. Only God can do this. Only God can break in. And so just wait and pray. You know, but that's not what Joseph did, right? He acted faithfully where he was until God redirected him. And I wonder if this is the faithful stance of advent. God is a disruptive God. The image, right, the image that I so desperately have clung to this year, that image of a shepherd, that image associated with the comfort and the, the control of God is also the image associated with the rod of discipline, of correction, with descent into the deep, dark valleys of life. You know, when we think about that tension, right, between activity and passivity of, of escapism and control. I mean, it, 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 there's also another danger in Christmas that, that we're, we're, I mean, taught to lean into the already, right, of the Christmas day itself and avoid the not yet, right? Christmas focuses on the joy of the incarnation, the image of the baby Jesus. The danger in doing this is that we've telescoped our vision too narrowly onto one time in history and we've neglected to look around us. I mean, is this world as it should be? Is your heart as it should be? Do the nations still rage or is there peace? I take comfort in the fact that there is so much of God's plan for you and for me that's already complete and fulfilled in the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We are no longer subject to the judgment that we deserve. And though that's so important for Christians, we are reliant on God's grace for us. Jesus is that answer to our deepest need. We never grow out of that. We can't grow beyond that. And the only response we can have to that is one of, of humble gratitude. We respond with joy because of what Christ has done. But the other side of that is that we worship a God who is disruptive that may yet disrupt our lives again. And that is unsettling. And that is nerve-wracking. You know, being a people of expectation and hope, of waiting and watching, of faithfully running with all our might to meet the Lord is, is not an easy task. Will God disrupt your life again? There's a promised future in Scripture, and we're not there yet. The lesson of Advent is a corrective, which actually helps situate us in the world. Right? It's, a, it's a tension between the already and the not yet, that, that Christ came and Christ is coming. And when Christ comes, it is disruptive. You know, disruptive 
accurately describes the first coming, the first advent. And I wonder, does it equally describe the second advent? And I think the answer is yes, but I wonder if the journey for you is the same as it is for me, that it's a recognition that maybe there's some work to do to be ready for God to disrupt us again. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would not take lightly that you are bigger than our thoughts, that you love deeper than we can even fathom, that in Christ you, you came, you're here, and you are coming. And your presence is not tame, but it is disruptive. Um, I pray that you would help us, stir us, challenge us um, with a, gr a grace that doesn't leave us as we are or that we were, um, but continue to break us so that we know that you will not rest till, till we reflect your image, uh, that we, till we are the image of Christ um, together as your church. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.